Welcome back to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, live in a lounge, staring at the Ouija board. Uh, I guess I should start off by saying sorry I haven't posted in a while, but you know what? The truth is, when people say sorry I haven't posted in a while, nobody really cares, you know what I mean? Like, doing a podcast is something akin to having, um, like, a pen pal, right? Like, you correspond with them, they correspond back with you, the message gets lost, the message gets interpreted, the message gets found, right? So, I mean, that's pretty much what podcasting is all about, is like sticking to your guns and making sure that you update your content uh, weekly, monthly. Uh, at one point in time, I, I was trying to do the podcast like every day, and like I was obsessed with it when I first started. I was actually posting sometimes three to four episodes in a day uh they were short episodes um probably 15 10 minutes at a time but um the vigor the excitement of a podcast when you first start uh, it's it's intoxicating to be honest with you it's um it's exciting it's 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 new it's fresh somehow along the way um I guess I, I shouldn't say that it became something of a task, but it's just like you want to be able to put out content that's exciting for people to listen to. You don't want to just put out an episode of you talking about, you know, what you did over the weekend. Um, and that's something that's it's, it's hard to come up with. Um, extremely hard in that sense that um, you, you want to be able to put your best foot forward. And after 158 episodes... I can tell you that, yeah, I, I'm still excited by doing it. Um, it's hard to find guests. Um, it's been really nice having um, Kevin Quinn be my co-host. Um, we were doing the live Facebook thing for a while just to try it out, see how it went, you know, and it, it was fun. It, it was hard to get people to actually participate. And I find that it's hard to get people to participate in general with certain things. I'm not really sure what it is. Uh, maybe it's they're, they're scared of the spotlight. They're scared of... Uh, taking the microphone and, you know, expressing their thoughts. But, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm deciding that um, I need to get back into it. And uh, even if these podcasts aren't really long, um, it's summertime, 2018. I am uh, currently without occupation, looking for a job. Might become a waiter. Not really sure what I'm going to do next. Um, but I'm going to update you constantly this summer uh with podcasts maybe sometimes uh daily who knows if i got something to say i'll say it um one thing i'm really passionate about right now that i have nobody to talk to about <laughs> is queen uh this movie trailer for bohemian rhapsody came out a couple weeks ago uh i love uh Raimi from uh, mr robot um i think he's a very talented actor so i was ecstatic to find out that he was playing freddie mercury my previous knowledge of queen before this movie trailer was, you know, I, I knew all the hit songs, We Will Rock You, Bohemian, of course. Um, but for me, the moment where I found out about Queen was in 1992, when I saw Wayne's World. And within opening minutes of the movie, the two main characters pick up their friends, and they go into an unforgettable performance of, uh, I guess, the first verse and the second part of the song. But um, the thing that's crazy is that song went to number one because of that movie in 1992. Uh, it, it was the number one song in 1975 as well. But Queen, to me, you know, it was always at the back of my mind, like, you know, as a band that I, I, I liked, but I didn't really know much about. So then after the movie trailer, I think it was like, um, 
it was like towards the end of like the school year, the working year for me. And um, I remember watching, like going on YouTube and um, typing in Queen Live Wembley Stadium Live Aid. And I had previously seen iconic images of him in the white um, tank top with the stonewashed jeans and the, the bracelet around his forearm. And I, you know, I really didn't pay much attention to it. But what I was ecstatic to find was this 22-minute concert, which is just electrifying. It's, it's important, too, to note that you don't see crowds like that anymore. Like, now when you go to a concert, you see... Um, you see, like, the, the big divides in the middle, so that way the crowd control, like, can be enforced. So it's just a sea of people, and Freddie Mercury, he is able to, like, take this audience on this, like, 22-minute journey, and he has them literally in the palm of his hands. And I really can't think of a single performer. That was the door shut, shutting. Uh, it's a little windy here at the Coral Gables of Cahill. But... What impressed me the most about Freddie was like his his ability to really enjoy being a lead singer. And I guess for me, I mean, you know, people who have listened to the podcast know that I'm a huge Nirvana fan. And um, Kurt actually mentions Freddie in his suicide note saying something uh, akin to, I wish I could um, be like Freddie Mercury who learned to love and relish the admiration of the crowd. I guess Kurt wasn't really good at that aspect of the game but to be a musician to be a performer you want everyone to be watching you and i kind of got i I got obsessed with queen's catalog i downloaded all the albums started listening to all the songs I, i i found that uh the 1982 hot space album is totally me i mean like it's totally ahead of its time it's it's uh it sounds like pocket dial the band that mickey karpovich and i are currently intertwined with the music is just, there's so many, there's 15 albums. I had no idea there was 15 albums. So I wanted to learn more about Freddie, so I picked up uh, a biography of his life. It's called The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury by Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne. It's called Somebody to Love. Um, I bought it about a month ago, and I knew I would read it as soon as school ended. Um, I went down to Cape May with my family last week, and there's nothing better than reading a book on the beach, man. I mean, if you could find time to do it. I mean, with a two-year-old running around, it's uh, a little difficult, but uh, I read the book uh, during the course of one week, and what I found was just this amazing journey. I felt like I lived and died with Freddie Mercury. Um, The one thing I didn't um, anticipate was becoming... Like I became almost a historian on the tragic illness that took his life, AIDS. And I wanted to do this podcast because what I found in this book was infuriating and it was also eye-opening at times. Okay, so for me, I just want to talk about like being a kid from the 80s, right? So like growing up in the 80s, I remember a few distinctive characteristics of AIDS. Um... I remember being four, like in 1984, and I remember like this the 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 uncertainty of how the disease was spread. I I know this because my dad, um, he he wasn't really aware of like how it spread. And my mom's a microbiologist, so which is a really strange type of thing. My dad, I guess you could consider him something something of like a germphobe, um, and my mom's a microbiologist, so it's a really strange pairing together that these two uh, <laughs> formed a union. 
But, uh, you know, like in general, in the early 80s, people thought that you could get AIDS from a toilet seat. They thought you could get AIDS from being coughed on. They had no idea that it was a sexually transmitted disease. They had no idea what it was. In fact, they called it GRID in the beginning before the before it was properly labeled AIDS. GRID stood for uh, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Disease, which, you know, it's really strange, too, because it's just like, you know, as an uneducated man, you would think that AIDS began with the homosexual community of the late 70s, early 80s in New York City and San Francisco, where, in fact... AIDS began almost uh, a century ago, um, early 1900s. They believe that um, actually what they believe, and they, the book goes into some detail about, is there's two different species of uh, chimpanzees living in the the jungle of uh, the Congo, African, the African continent, and they got into a fight. And prior to them getting into a fight, they both had two viruses. Uh, they both had two different sicknesses, I believe. And when they got into a fight. It got a little uh, heated and um, some scratches and some blood were drawn. And when the blood mixed together, this perfect combination of two um, viruses formed what would become HIV. Um, somewhere along the line, one of these chimpanzees bit a hunter who was there. That hunter went on to spread the disease. And for the most part, um, HIV, the, the disease, the, it was contained within the Congo um, the Republic of the Congo in the African nation for, for years. But what happened was industrialism, you know, Henry T. Ford, all these, you know, people are starting to expand and, like, technology's catching up and, you know, people are starting to spread out and travel more. And AIDS jumped, excuse me, HIV jumped over into, you know, different continents and started spreading around the world. And it, it's just, it's crazy because it's, they had no idea what it was, you know, and for the most part, I mean, some of the doctors labeled it as cancer. They had no idea that it was attacking, attacking, you know, T-cells and immune deficiencies and just all sorts of crazy shit. And, you know, I really felt terrible for, okay, so like in the book, there is this detail that just stuck out with me and I'm going to quote it right here so I don't mess it up. But the worst part about it is there's this guy named uh, Gaetan Dugas. That's G-A-E-T-A-N-D-U-G-A-S. And I encourage you to Google this because it's fascinating stuff. He was a flight attendant who was labeled patient zero. And he's the man accused of um, sparking the AIDS epidemic in the United States of America. And I, I never had read anything about this. And this guy apparently um, was the one who spread it. He was a flight attendant, so obviously he's traveling all across the country at the time, um, the doctors didn't know what he had. Um, he had something called Kaposi's sarcoma, and that's the spots that AIDS patients demonstrate on their face. Uh, if you've seen the movie with Tom Hanks, Philadelphia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, his doctors basically said, oh, it's a skin cancer. We'll treat it with chemotherapy. And he continued to have uh, a very promiscuous um lifestyle, um, had several um, sexual partners, um, frequented bathhouses in New York City, which were popular at the time. They didn't know that it was sexually transmitted. And um, somehow along the way, it, it just spread everywhere. And the thing that's crazy too is like, you know, we talk about safe sex all the time. We talk about condoms and stuff like that. Like back in the day, nobody talked about that stuff. Nobody even knew like 
like what the repercussions were. They just kind of did things and just lived their lives. But there's so much history within um, that century of how it spread from trains to, uh, you know, canals and boats to flight attendants to patient zero, zero, which the thing that just really blows me away is that he became patient zero when he was misproperly labeled that from another author who collected the works. So patients A through Z, Gaten, he was considered patient O. And this other author saw patient O and thought, oh, you know what would be better press is to call him patient zero. So this guy, like, literally is, like, walking around New York City as patient zero. Doctors are telling him, you know, you you shouldn't be sleeping with other men. You shouldn't be doing this. And he didn't know. I mean, like, the insane thing is just, like, nobody knew what this would do. Nobody knew that this would affect, um, you know, 300 million people, like, it's just, it's shocking, really. And at the same time, in the 1970s, there's a band called Queen that's coming up, and uh, they have a, a lead singer who, um, I mean, his, his, his real name is Balsara, and he changed it to uh, Mercury in the early 70s. And he wanted to be a lead singer of a band terribly. And uh, he was in the music scene, he was an artist, he was uh, trying to sell his stuff, like, on the street. And it just never really worked out for him until he... Um, he he got involved with this band called Smile, and um, from them they would become Queen, and uh, they they just took the world by storm. They tried they were like you know a glam band. Freddie definitely you know um, dressed up provocatively, tried to push the envelope and stuff like that. But the thing that I really liked the most about Queen is Freddie was quoted as saying is like he just wanted to have a good time, and there's nothing worse when your favorite band goes political and it's like. I don't know. I, I mean, I remember for me in the late 90s when Pearl Jam rallied against Ticketmaster, got crazy when Bush became president. It was a turnoff for me because it's just like, you know, I mean, I don't need my music to tell me what my political status should be or shouldn't be. I just want my music to make me feel good. I want it to make me feel life. You know what I mean? And Queen adopted that principle. They, they said, we'll never, you know do something that makes us into, you know, pigeonholes us really into, like, one collective thought of consciousness. They just wanted to have a good time. And if you listen to the song Don't Stop Me Now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That song actually was proven by scientists in this book. They detailed that the beats per minute, the song, the, the frequency of his voice, it, it, it produces, a like, a, a general sense of well-being within oneself. I totally uh, recommend you Googling that. So at the time, Freddie's coming up, and the thing that's nuts is like, you know, if you were a gay man in the late 19, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, you were in the closet. People didn't come out much, especially if you were a celebrity because it risked, you you ran the risk of destroying your career, which is just completely insane to think that that's even a possibility. But regardless, it's different times, different times for different people. Let me get a sip of this tea real quick. So the thing that's nuts is that, well, Freddie, like, first off, he met some girl named Mary, and he fell in love with her, and they, they dated for a while, and, um, you know, she quickly learned that he was, you know, bisexual, and uh, he had interest in other men. He still didn't come out. He would hide it, you know, which is crazy, and um, he hid it for his entire career, actually, um, which is insane. Freddie loved the Bacchanalian lifestyle. Once he became 
a successful rock star. And once, I think it was after 1975 when Bohemian Rhapsody completely dominated the charts. Um, and the, for the time, you know, at the time, a six minute song uh, to come out and to blow everybody away like that. Um, you never got six minutes of airplay on the radio. They give you two, three minutes tops, but some the record executives were like, there's no way we could release this. It'll never work. We need to cut it down. And Queen were like, no. And in that movie trailer, there's that, that um, quote, uh, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for your wife if you think six minutes is too long. Thank God they did release it, though, because it's one of the most amazing songs ever. The Freddie wrote the song, and I never realized this until I read the book, but the song is actually him coming out. It's and when you listen to it, there's three distinctive parts to the song. Um, I never realized that he was saying Bismillah. Bismillah is like the equivalent. His religion is a uh, Zoroastrian, and um, Bismillah is the equivalent to, I guess, the Holy Trinity in Christianity. Bismillah, please let me go. No, I will not let you go. He's talking about almost like God letting him go so he could be himself. And um, when you listen to the song with the perspective of him trying to come out to the public and how he did it so creatively and so under the radar of what anybody thought this song was about, you know what I mean? Like when you watch Wayne's World, you don't think that that song's about that. But I, I love the fact that he was able to express himself artistically through these songs with his lyrics. And the composition of the song is amazing. I mean, Freddie wrote most of the hits for Queen. And the interesting thing about that is the band all shared uh, top 10 hits. Uh, both in the UK and the United States, but Freddie wrote the majority of the hits. He could play the shit out of the piano. He really sucked at guitar. Uh, the song "A Crazy Thing," "A Crazy Little Thing Called Love," he wrote on guitar because he says he was so limited on guitar. He thinks he wrote a great song. That's an awesome song too, by the way. I thought it was actually written by Elvis, and they covered it before I had any prior knowledge of Queen. So that was actually a really interesting, cool thing for me to discover. Anyway, um, Mary Austin was um you know his confident his um his girl you know and she stuck by him which is which is a cool thing that she stuck with him for i guess the majority of his life even when he came out um she she you know basically said you know he said he would say about her if i go first i'm going to leave everything to her nobody else gets a penny except my cats i love her until i draw my last breath we'll probably grow old together and you know what the crazy thing is he did leave her everything even after she knew about his bisexual Bacchanalian lifestyle, all the boyfriends that he would have, Freddie loved to party. In the late 70s, um, the lure of New York City, there, there's something just so insane about learning about these stories of New York City and like um, just what the scene was like. I mean, can you imagine what it's like living... In a world where, you know, if you're a homosexual, you are completely guarded, you have to remain in the shadows, but then you go into a city where it's embraced and there's clubs where you can get together and you can celebrate life and feel good about yourself. And for me, I never understood how people are homophobic. I don't understand how people are racist. I really, you know, like if you're comfortable within your own kingdom, your own self, your own being, why the hell do you care what somebody else is feeling? homosexuality wasn't invented in the 1970s or 80s. It's been around forever, you know? It's just a different type of blueprint for somebody's genetic code. You know, it, it's like, you know, like a different cat or a different dog. You take them in. You don't say, oh, well, I'm not sure about that breed. You love them unconditionally, right? So, I mean, for me, I never understood that. And it's always been a source of, of just, 
I, I, I'm, I'm, I just can't understand why people hate so much in this world. For Freddy, um, he didn't really care, man. He was very private, but God, did he like the party. I mean, one of the things I found fascinating about Queen is they would have these, like, big, big rock shows. So they would do a show, right? This was Freddy's procedure. Most of the time, if you're a band, you sound check at five, then you have dinner, and then the show's at nine. No, Freddie would sound check, then have the show, and then after the show, they would have these big, grand dinners where everybody would sit down, and then after the dinner, everybody would go out and party. Freddie loved to run court. He loved to, um, he loved the party aspect of it, too. So, I mean, like, he would go to the clubs. He was definitely uh, having unprotected sex with different men. Um, tragically, they think that he caught... Um, he had sex actually with somebody who had sex with patient zero or patient O um, in 1982. And if you Google um, Saturday Night Live, Queen, 1982, Freddie, his appearance, he, he seems like as if he's sick in, in, during this, this video performance, which is actually the only time that they um, performed on American television live. He apparently caught... He got the disease a few weeks earlier, and they say when you when you contract HIV, you get sick like a flu, and then you're fine. And then there's like this part of the HIV where it incubates, and it, it can incubate for years, and you don't even know you have it, which is so scary because they say in the book right now that there's so many people living with HIV still to this day that have no clue that they have it, which is horrifying. So Freddie gets it, um, but then he gets better and he you know he, he feels uh I'm, I'm i'm back to my regular lifestyle and he continues to sleep with different men um he's he uh he he even starts sleeping with different women too i mean there's this um i forget her name in the book but she's like a i believe a german actress uh with an amazing um rack as he calls it in the book he he loves her breasts and you know he just he's, he's just partying he's having a great time um and the thing that's crazy is that I never realized this, but the United Kingdom embraced Queen. They had hit songs, but not many of them reached number one. The United States of America actually didn't really respond to Queen that much. They failed to chart certain singles. Um, it wasn't too much later that they became such a huge success in North America. But the sad thing about Queen is that he just didn't know what was happening. And you know, and the the thing that infuriates me about the book is like once AIDS like, you know, HIV, AIDS comes into the scene, the American government, right? Like, Ronald Reagan is the president at the time. He didn't really do much to stop this. You know, the CDC and all these other different, you know, fractions of the government are like, you know, they're, they're observing what's going on, but they're not really giving all the facts to the American public, which really pissed me off when I read this because it's just like, what I remember from being a kid is his, excuse me, the war on drugs and like D.A.R.E. and all that stuff coming out. I believe that Ron Reagan actually, in the book, it says that he never really um, spoke about AIDS. Like, he never really addressed it. And the American public, you know, they knew about it, but they didn't rally behind um, the cause to find a cure, which is very disheartening. Um, it's disheartening as a human being. It's disheartening as a reader of this book. And, like, basically, I mean, America at the time is at the forefront of, of its powers. Um, everybody follows their lead when america dropped the ball to show the importance of what was going on with the country and the world of the spread of this this disease not everyone followed suit so i mean it wasn't really that big of a deal to them they thought ah, it'll go away 
but they had no clue what would happen, and it would be such a terrible thing that um, at this point claims 70% of the population of Africa um, is infected with HIV or AIDS, which is just terrible to think. It's a disease that didn't go away. It's a disease that continues to kill people, and it's something that we could have... Maybe we could have prevented it. Maybe we could have stopped the spread of it if there was a little bit more of a, a cultural response to it in the early 80s. I think it wasn't until, um, I think they said October 1985, the legendary actor Rock Hudson died of AIDS-related com- complications. Nobody knew Rock Hudson was even gay, and I, I imagine it was a huge shock to all those conservative you know, hillbillies <laughs> of the Americas um, to, to find out that, you know, their their precious actor was gay. But, you know, I mean, it was almost a good thing that Rock Hudson did this because it was another way for the American public to gain exposure to this terrible illness and stuff. Um, Hudson kept everything a secret from his friends. He didn't want anybody to know. Uh, he was trying to find treatment. Um, and apparently he collapsed inside of an, uh, an airport. Um, if he didn't collapse inside the airport, who knows if this like revelation would have came out to the press, but it did. And when it did, you know, people start to, to pay more attention to this disease. And they start thinking, Jesus Christ, could this happen to us? Could this happen to my kids? And then, you know, the American public started to get really freaked out when heterosexuals started to get AIDS, drug users who use intravenous I can never say that word, intravenous needles together, shared blood, got the disease, um, and it, it, you know, it jumped over into different walks of life, or, you know, and it freaked people out. Um, it, it was just, you know, and like for me growing up in the 80s, like as a kid, I remember seeing stuff like that, being a young boy, and like thinking, and I'm just going to speak, you know, candidly about this, like, the way that it was presented to me was that it was a, a homosexual disease. Not a disease of humankind, not a disease that would affect the world's population, but a gay disease. And I feel as if the counterculture reality of the 80s and 90s was steeped, early 90s, was steeped in homophobia. And it's disgusting, really. It's disgusting that my DNA, you know... Um, has this like pre-programmed like uh feeling in it that you have to not accept this person here or that or whatever like i want my son to not ever have to feel that way about any walk of life you know you should be able to accept everybody regardless of skin age religion whatever it wasn't until the 90s i remember when um pedro zamora on the real world um, was the first person that I ever got to know who had AIDS. Uh, I remember um, Puck, one of the, the wild card characters on the show, attacking Pedro about some shit like that. But I, I remember he was the first person that I felt like I knew who then died from AIDS. And um, yeah, I was, I was just heartbroken by it. I remember seeing the movie Philadelphia, Tom Hanks, and I just thought, oh my God, like this is affecting other people. This is, this is serious, you know? Um, and it also affected like sexuality. I think in the in the in the late eighties, early nineties, like um, we're humans. We want to procreate. It's a natural part of uh, what we want to do in life. You know what I mean? We want to feel compassion towards others. We want to feel other people's touches. 
and AIDS, you know, it really got into the people's mindset of being like, holy shit. And people were so misinformed about how AIDS was actually spread. It was spread by unprotected sex, drugs, blood, you know, like. And the other part of the book that's insane, too, is like this whole thing from Haiti. Like that this whole chapter, which is devoted towards tainted blood banks and stuff. People who were donating blood who had HIV and they did nothing to stop the blood from coming into America. There's so many people who were infected with the AIDS virus because of uh, this like unprecedented type of blood procedure. And I can't quote everything because it's just, I read the book and it's just still fresh in my mind. I could go back and open it, but I encourage you to perhaps Google search this stuff and see how many different things have affected everybody in the long run. There was nothing done to prevent it. There was nothing, there's no procedures. The handling of the blood was done all wrong. It's terrible. Um, but for me, though, I just, you know, my heart just breaks for anybody who is ever affected by this disease, anybody who knows anybody that passed away. It's just a real shame. Um, for me, it was tragic in the book when, you know, Freddie takes a, his first AIDS test and it comes back positive, negative, because at the time they couldn't really tell you one way or another if you had it. They could tell you that if your body developed antibodies towards the virus, which means that you had been exposed to it. Freddie was convinced that he didn't have it. Um, when he's like 39. Um, and the, the interesting thing is like if you watch the Live Aid historical um, performance um, at Wembley Stadium, the hand, the arm that has the, the bracelet around his bicep, they claimed that one of the Carposi sarcoma marks is under his arm. And you can see it in any picture. He's holding it up. And they think that this is like an early sign, early detection of like what was to happen to him. It wasn't so much later that Freddie discovered after taking multiple tests that yes, he had been exposed to the virus and then he started to retreat into his mansion and um, not really be in the public eye. They actually refused to tour North America. North America at the time, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, did not really care for Queen's music at the time. They, they actually hated Hot Space. Um, they were such, they didn't respond to it. So Freddie said, oh, no, we'll just, we'll tour out here. We'll stay here. And then um, people started to notice after, like, shows, you know, Freddie would go home. Um, he had met um, another love of his life named Jim Hutton. Um, and Jim was just a burly man with a mustache who, he didn't, he, he, he was just a normal guy. And Freddie found love with him, and Freddie took him to actually Live Aid. Uh, and uh, sadly, um, later in life, Jim was exposed to the HIV virus as well. People start saying, well, where's Freddie? Why isn't he out? Why, why is he home? And, you know, I think Freddie at this time um, comes to the realization that, yes, he does have HIV and then later, you know, full-blown AIDS. Um, the, the crazy part about this that I did not know is that when Freddie finds out that he has AIDS, he has this unwilling, comp he has this unwilling drive he wants to get back into the studio. He wants to create more music. In fact, he created music up until almost, you know, the final years of his life with Queen. He, I mean, he even, at the time too, which is crazy that the Sun Reporter, which is a UK tabloid base, um, rag magazine, starts to like take pictures of him and see that his appearance is changing, his cheekbones are being sunken in, he's losing dramatic weight. He doesn't look like himself, and um, the sad part about this is it was true he did have AIDS, but you know he never came out and said it. You know he just kept pushing forward. He even made music videos, man, which is insane. Like you know, like 
he puts makeup on his face to hide his Carposi sarcoma. Um, he pads his suits at this time to make him appear as if he still has weight on him. And it's just tragic. But what really isn't tragic is that regardless of his disease, he decides that he wants to maintain his status as an artist and continue to record with Queen. Um, it wasn't until... like Queen didn't even know he had AIDS, really. And in the book, it says that they went out to... Um, a restaurant one night and Freddie just came out and said it like at the time um, Freddie liked playing tennis he sustained an injury on his foot which prohibited him from walking for the rest of his life and he had some sort of gaping wound because of the you know deficiency within his immune system to heal finally comes out and tells him he has AIDS and um, what is really just amazing is that the band decides to rally behind Freddie continue to lie to the press say he does not have AIDS and basically protect his um, privacy and they start recording. They start recording, you know, <laughs> so much material. In fact, that there was a 15th album that was released uh, that I didn't know that Freddie, I haven't even got to it yet in the catalog, that Freddie helped. Freddie recorded a whole bunch of material for them to re to continue to record to a click track um, after his death. The worst part about this is, is that Freddie is beginning to die and that was like a hard part of the book for me because it's just like at, at this point you, you you feel like you know him and you know like you feel like you, you live with the guy because it's written so well this book that you feel like you were part of his inner circle you you could feel his creativity and his magic that he he loved to capture in the studio and on stage um, his final public appearances in February of 1990 it was uh, the British Phonographic Awards and it shocked everybody who was watching because um, he didn't look like himself at all. Um, he was only like in his mid forties, but he looked like he was, you know, approaching, you know, the later part of one's life. Um, he didn't speak, but um, at the end of it, he he does go up to the microphone. And he says, "Thank you, good night," and that was it for Freddie. Um, nobody saw him again in public. There was a couple uh, pictures that were snapped, him leaving a hospital. It just sucked, you know. It's part of the book that was hard, man. I, I got emotional. I was just like, man, I'm, I'm gonna miss this guy, you know. What Freddie said um, that really strikes me, and I'll take with me, um, I guess, for the rest of my life, just from being a musician and an artist, is that uh, he said, "I want to reach as many people as I can. The more, the merrier." As far as I'm concerned, I'd like the whole world to listen to my music, and I'd like everybody to listen to me and look at me when I'm playing on stage. I totally get that. I totally understand that. Even Kurt, despite despite the fact that he took his own life and he says that he couldn't, you know, relish in the admiration of the crowd, Kurt, Kurt felt he wanted people to watch him. Everybody that's a musician wants people to watch them. Now, does every musician have that narcissistic beat to them? Maybe not, but, you know, like... Nobody takes up the, the guitar because they don't want to play or perform for anybody. It's just a sick thing. And I think that if more musicians and more artists took up the type of feeling that Freddie Mercury evokes, being that, you know, I want you to watch me. I want you to, to watch me perform. And I want you to really be in the moment with me. Then maybe more people would be successful and they wouldn't self-doubt themselves. Because self-doubting self and self-loathing is, is a is the easy passageway into the great unknown of failure. And 
if you're listening to this, if you're a podcast host, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're a school teacher, if you're a fireman as the fire alarm sounds in the background, know this, that when you wake up in the morning, if you aren't completely, completely 100% into what you're doing, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Maybe you should reconsider what your mark will be left on this world. Maybe you should like think about like what you can contribute. You know, staring into the ocean, um, reading this book, finding out about Freddie Mercury, finding out about Queen, and discovering just the terrible reality of AIDS, it was eye-opening. Um, I can't tell you, how, like, yeah, I'll probably take this book with me for the rest of my life. You know, I'll take Freddie definitely with me for the rest of his, my life, because I feel like I'm... Uh, kind of attached to him in a way it's just like you know I, I i could totally appreciate everything he did and the fact that when you watch that footage of him up there on the stage at wembley he's larger than life he looks like a like a like a god up there freddie was only five foot nine i'm five eleven five foot nine's short but it just goes to show that the stature the the image that you reflect on the world has nothing to do with how you look or how tall you are. It's really how you present yourself and the confidence that you put forward. And for me, that's what I'll take from the book um, the most is that you have to be confident. You have to be confident in everything you do. You have to be confident in the relationships you forge. You have to be confident with the way you put on your turn signal approaching an intersection. You have to really find the time to not only love yourself, but to love others. Um, I'm happy to be back podcasting here in the lounge, and uh, I'm happy to say that uh, I love Freddie Mercury, and I love this book, Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury by Matt Richards and Mark Langthorne. So much content in this book. Um, as the movie approaches in November, I'm sure more people will be talking about Freddie Mercury, but you heard it here, you heard it here first in the Bobcast. Don't stop me now. I'm having a good time, good time. Get ready for the resurgence of Freddie Mercury and the undeniably unstoppable Queen. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Bobcast.